Living a life of intention starts within. Dora and I are excited to help you find the path to co-mindfulness living through our co-mindfulness masterclass. Our seven co-mindfulness principles will take you on a remarkable path towards health and happiness. For more information and to sign up for the masterclass, visit comindfulnessproject.com. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We are so excited for you to hear today's podcast because Dr. Lodog is phenomenal in so many ways. First and foremost, she is an internationally recognized expert in the fields of integrative medicine, dietary supplements, and women's health. Dr. Lodog's exploration of natural medicine began more than 35 years ago as she studied midwifery, herbal medicine, massage therapy, and martial arts before earning her medical degree from the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Lodog, to HealthGig. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. We're thrilled you've joined us today. We thought if it would be okay if we could start at the very beginning and if you could tell us your story and how you found your way to becoming a healer and doctor. Like all stories, you try to find where is the beginning, right? I <laughs> I don't ever remember a time not loving the plants or being outside. You know, I was a Girl Scout. I went camping with my family, my grandparents all the time. I was very close to my two grandmothers. But there was a pretty powerful moment that happened when I was young. I was probably about seven or eight years old. And my grandmother took me to Medicine Lodge, Kansas. There was a small powwow going on. And this was a place that was personally meaningful to her because this is where the Comanche tribe had surrendered, however you want to define that, to the U.S. Army. My grandmother was Park Comanche, and she wanted me to share in that experience with her. And, you know, it was really beautiful. I loved the drumming and the singing, and it felt so otherworldly. It was very different. And when we were driving home, we were in her pickup truck, and she was in a very thoughtful place. And she said to me, you know, baby, when you were born, you were set on a path, and that's your medicine road. And she said, everything you do in your life, everything the way you think, the way you eat, the way you move in the world, the way you talk to other people, all of that is your medicine, good or bad. It's your medicine. She said, you have to be thoughtful about how you walk on your road. Well, I was a young kid and I was just like, oh, grandma. You know, it's like, you know, what do you do with that when you're that young? You're like, okay, grandma. And I know that from myself talking to young children, you know, that sometimes we're in these philosophical places, but just like what happened to me, I think happens a lot of times to children when we talk to them in this way, it planted a seed inside of me. And that as I grew older and traveled through midwifery and herbal medicine and was a very active martial artist, I realized much of my well-being, physical and mental and emotional, actually came down to the way I lived my life, from the food that I ate, to the thoughts that I would think, to the way I spoke to other people, the way I moved in the world. All these things that she shared with me at such a young age actually are the tenets of integrative medicine, or what people used to call holistic medicine. There's more to being healthy than just not being sick. And there's more to being healthy than taking pills. 
it's a lifelong pursuit. It's not a destination. It's a journey. And we're on it from the time we're born until we leave this world and maybe beyond, depending upon your own personal faith tradition. So Dr. Lodog, how did you get started teaching? I was studying midwifery and living on top of a Taekwondo school, Kim School of Taekwondo in Richmond, Virginia. So I was a very avid martial artist and I was studying midwifery. And then I went to massage school to learn how to do massage. But particularly, I really wanted to understand how to do prenatal and infant massage because I felt that would be very important as a midwife for women in labor, but also for babies, maybe that it had a long transit into the world. And also in martial arts, there was this whole notion that one should learn to heal what one can harm. And martial arts, of course, is about defense and blocking, kicking, punching. And so to learn to massage or to knead with the hands felt like something that would fit very naturally with that. So it all was kind of happening at the same time in a very powerful point of my life from the time of 18 to sort of 24, 25 years of age. I was into all of it and I thought all of it was wonderful. And I opened my first herb shop in Las Cruces, New Mexico in 1983. I ran my business down there. Uh, for many years. And I started teaching herb classes as well as teaching martial arts, teaching it locally and also at New Mexico State University. I would say that from the time I was very young, I've always thought of myself as a very good student, a very hungry student, but I've also thought of myself as a teacher. And I think teachers that stick with it are basically students that remain hungry and then want to share what they've learned with others and from others. What did you learn from being a midwife and how many babies did you bring into the world? Well, the women brought their own babies into the world, but I did, I did assist. Right. <laughs> I caught right. babies. I caught babies. I caught many babies, actually, many, many over many, many years. And it's quite a treat when you have a 20-year-old come up to you and want to have a picture with you because you were her midwife, you know, uh, when she was born. Midwives have a very respected place. In many parts of the world, when we go to Africa or when we've been down in South and Central America, you can say you're a doctor and people, that's kind of interesting. You say you're a midwife and people open their doors and want you to come in their home. It's a very different sort of way that they hold those who care for women as they bring their children into the world. I loved being a midwife. I loved pregnant women. I loved the magic of birth. You know, when a woman gives birth, she's in many ways, walking between the worlds. She's walking between this world and the spirit world. And it's not easy. And she's forever changed by it because with her first child, she's no longer single. She's no longer on her own. Whether she's with a partner or not, she is connected to another human being in the most deep and profound way for the rest of that child's life, no matter how old they are. My grandmother, who was in her 90s, when my mother was ill, I was talking to her on the phone and you know she was a great, great grandmother and she was still talking about how worried she was about her baby, her baby who was in her late 70s. So I realized that that love that a mother has for a child never changes. The love doesn't, the relationship does as we move from a young child to an adult child to often companions and friends, but the love that deep maternal love is, it's eternal and powerful. 
So I loved being a part of that. And I loved that women would let me go on part of that journey with them. I felt very humbled and privileged by the experience. And you continue to do a lot of work in women's health, right? I do. As a medical doctor. How does that look for you with women? And what do you do for women in terms of women's health generally? Well, whatever she needs. I remember when I first got back, it seemed like I was just doing pap smears for months. I was just, <laughs> Jim's like, oh my goodness, you know? And I was like, well, a lot of women don't like them and they kind of like the way I do them. So, you know, for women, it's really uh, listening, listening to her, helping her be able to express what her desires and her dreams and her goals are, what her problems are, how she identifies those, how she wants to go about finding solutions or ways of dealing with her pain or her hot flashes or her depression or her endometriosis or anything else that she's living with. And the beautiful thing about being a physician or an acupuncturist or a midwife or anybody who cares and partners with other people to help them feel better is that it's such a beautiful partnership. I mean, that's what it's all about. And women in particular, men will often come in and the visits are much shorter. I found this to be universally true with very few exceptions. Men come in, this is the problem. What do I need to do? How do I fix it? Tell me what to do. They leave, they're happy. Women come in, they want to have a conversation about it. I find that a lot of women find their answers through talking about things. So when they talk through things, then they begin to find their own answers. That's a generalization I understand, but I would tell you that 40-something years of sitting with women, I would say that there's quite a bit of truth to that. I think you're absolutely right. And to have a physician or, as you said, a partner in our healing journey or as we walk through life, to find someone like you is pretty special. Do you still practice? Do you still see individuals? I do. More on a consultative basis now so that I'm not managing all the primary care like I used to. I was a primary care physician for a long time. So now more consulting. So when a woman's been diagnosed with breast cancer, for instance, and she's a little overwhelmed and has seen her oncologist and has seen the surgeon and it's kind of like, okay, this is what they're going to do, but is there anything else I can do? And so then you begin to dive into when you say that, what does that mean to you? When you say, what else? What do you feel is missing? What do you feel has not been talked about, discussed, explored? This really gives women an opportunity, I think, to then say, I'm afraid I'm going to lose all my hair. I don't know how I feel about being bald. I'm really afraid of throwing up. And I heard that this can really make you throw up. And then you can begin to tease out those things. You can say, well, have you talked to anybody about a wig? Is that something you might think of? And, you know, for me, because I had cancer and I bought a wig because I wasn't sure how I was going to feel. I wanted to look like myself. And I said, and so I wore the wig. And I said, but one of the most tender moments of that experience was when my son at Christmas comes in and sits down next to me on the bed and just says, Mom, would it be okay if I just saw you without your wig? And... um I said, of course, and I took it off. And he so tenderly took my head in his hands and he kissed me and he said, I knew you would be beautiful 
I just knew you would be beautiful. You know, sometimes there's these incredibly intimate moments if we're willing to sort of open ourselves to them, that nobody wants to get cancer, but cancer can be quite a teacher. So I love what I do. I love learning, listening, partnering, sharing. Clearly what my calling is, right? We're all called to do something and to be of service and somehow, and other than being a mother, which I think was my first calling. I love being a mother. My second calling very much was to be with women, primarily women and children, and help them in their journey. How many children do you have? We have two. We have a boy and a girl, beautiful children. Dora and I both are moms too. We both have four children, so eight between us. Now we have daughter-in-laws and son-in-laws. I do too. I do too. So they're, they're growing. My husband was one of 10 children from a big family. And we have lots of other children, you know, we're very close to our animals and our horses and our companion dogs. Can you talk to us about relationships and how they impact our well-being? Relationships are so critical for human beings. They are to most mammals, but to humans in particular, we are hardwired for intimacy. Imagine living 5,000 years ago And if you had violated one of the group's key tenets, what often happened to you? You were banished. You were sent away. You were shunned. Nobody would look at you, talk to you, speak your name. And most psychologists say that that's probably one of the most painful types of punishments other than death that a human being can experience because we need each other. And that's because for so many thousands of years, we relied upon one another for our very survival. You're hardwired to be intimate and to be relational. And women in particular are relational and need close friends. How many? That's been an interesting research question. You know, The way I usually ask my patients to determine sort of their level of connectivity is I ask them, I say, well, you know, Today's a good day. We don't have any bad news. There's no bad labs, nothing bad we have to share, but someday maybe there might be. And I was wondering if you could just give me the first name, first name only, of four people that you think you could call that would either jump right on the phone or come over to the clinic, but would just drop anything to be with you either on the phone or in person if something like this came up. Some people are like, yeah, I'd take Patrick and John and Vivian and Doris. And I'm like, okay, I only needed four. Good, good. You passed, right? (laughs) But then some people are, I kid you not. Well, maybe my daughter. She doesn't live nearby anymore and she has kids, but I think she would try. And then it's like anybody else. Is there somebody else? And then just the tears. And just this sense of realization that in her life, she doesn't really have anybody that she feels she could just turn to in a moment of that kind of need. That to me is as big an indicator or risk factor for her health as her blood pressure, her weight, her cholesterol levels, any other measurement we could measure. That fact right there puts her at high risk for heart disease, death from heart disease, depression, anxiety, the list goes on. You know, but when I used to teach at the medical school, the students, the residents would be like, yeah, but I don't want to ask that, Dr. Ludwig, like if I ask it, and then they say something like that, what am I going to do? I'm like, I don't know. What would you do? 
Physicians often feel like they have to fix everything instead of learning to come alongside somebody. Coming alongside somebody allows you to help them explore what they might do instead of you coming up with answers, helping them explore those answers. Do you go to church? Did you used to go to church or did you find comfort there? This is just an example. I believe that relationships are absolutely crucial. Now, you can have toxic relationships. We've all had people that when you leave them, you feel worse than you did before you were with them. And if that's a constant feeling of after I leave being with my friend, I feel worse about myself. I feel worse about life. I feel more down depressed not because they're in a depressing situation or something, but just because a lot of times we're around people that are sort of energy sinks. They just take a lot of our energy and they don't give it back. And those kind of people, you may be related to some of them. You have to find ways to limit your time with them. If you have to be around them, find ways to negotiate a better way of interacting with one another. And you know, it's not as hard as people think it is. I'm just amazed at how many people refuse to speak their truth. Like, well, Marjorie, when you say that, you know, I understand where it's coming from, but it makes me feel bad about myself. So I just wanted you to know that. And unless the person's really not a very good person, most of the time people are like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even know. So sometimes we have to own our own part of our relationships with people. And most of the time that means practicing kindness practicing compassion, and also practicing truth-telling. Trisha and I have done a lot of work with the loneliness epidemic, and we had Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, wrote the wonderful book together, who addresses the loneliness epidemic. And it sounds like you've been out front on that and talking to people about loneliness. What do you think about this epidemic of loneliness? I think it's multifactorial and there's no straight, simple way in or out of it. My personal feeling is that many people have let go of or rejected, but never replaced a spiritual path. Many people maybe started out going to, you know, the Methodist church or something, but it it, it never fit for them. It was something they did because mama told them and then they got dressed and went on Sunday, but they never were sort of really touched in a deep way. Like some people are when they go. But instead of saying that doesn't really work for me, what's another way that I can find that place that fills this place of meaning and purpose that helps me understand that there's something greater than myself in the world? That doesn't have to be a God. For many people it is, but it can be nature. It can be place. It can be a deeply contemplative practice. But without the underpinning of something bigger than you, It's really hard because then it all comes down to this is all there is. It's just this. It's just this. And everywhere I look, it's broken glass. That's a hard way for people to live. And then they end up feeling depressed. And then we put them on antidepressants, which can be very useful for people to get them off the cliff, you know, to help them from falling. But it's not the answer long term. If they go on an antidepressant, it's to help them feel stable so that now they can begin to do the work that's required for healing to happen. Healing is painful. Birth is painful. Birth is hours of labor and it's moving and it's breathing and it's pushing and it's this whole act and you're so involved in it. And healing doesn't just happen. 
It's work. Life is work. Relationships are work. I think this is something folks think I can just go take some ayahuasca or maybe drop some psilocybin or go smoke some cannabis and I'm going to be transformed. And even if they are transformed from that experience, you can't just keep going back and doing it over and over and over get to get the experience. The whole point of using that as an experience is to help you find the place so you can go there on your own again. But I see a lot of people who are searching they say, I'm just lost. And I say, well, what does that mean? I just don't know where I'm going. And I said, but do you know where you are? They're like, well, I'm like, because if you know where you are, you know, you're not lost, right? Because <laughs> if you know where you are, you're not lost. Now it's how do you want to get to where you want to go? And, you know, I ask people a lot of times, like, what are you doing when you lose all track of time? When's the last time you did something and you just totally lost track of time? And people give you very interesting answers, but I say, you know, when time becomes a dimension that you're no longer aware of, that tells you you're in some very special place. So how do you spend more time there? You know, how do you make a Saturday become that? How do you bring this more often? I live in relative solitude. I live in a very remote area of Northern New Mexico. We're an hour from Santa Fe, which is where we go grocery shopping in that. Oh, wow. We can walk for hours and hours and hours and never see a soul. We share this very wild area with bears and mountain lions and bobcats. And we have cameras out, so we get to watch them all the time. And it's a wild, beautiful place. And people often come there and say, isn't it hard for you to live here? And I usually say, um, what do you mean? In what way do you think it's hard? Oh, aren't you lonely out here? And I said, oh my goodness, I have the horses and the dogs and the chickens and I've got the bear. I've got 13 bear out here. I've got two mountain lions. I've got many, many fox, a pack of six coyotes that I've named. I said, so I'm never alone. And I said, and more than that, as I've gotten older, I've learned that there's a big difference between loneliness and solitude. And that I think sometimes as we get older, we are more able to embrace solitude and the quiet. I think it's much harder for younger people just by nature of their youth, which is why I think they're also more vulnerable to loneliness. I see it also in elders, extreme elders, and with COVID, the isolation that people have had. No Thanksgivings together. Many people in their 80s and 90s are not very adept at FaceTiming and computers, and some are very hard of hearing, so it's hard to hear on the computer. So I'm very aware of those things, and many of them have lost most of the people they grew up with. You know, if they're 90, many of their friends that they went to school with have died. I think we have to do a good job of looking out for our elders. I do not call them seniors and I do not call them the elderly. I despise both of those terms. There is something very different when you refer to somebody as an elder than the elderly. One has a strong sense of wisdom and a revered place in our community and in our lives. The other is somebody frail and aged. I've written many things and people change it to the elderly. And I always have to go back and say, I was intentional. They're elders, not the elderly. It just feels that what you're talking about, where you live, that you really understand the importance of how we are all part of nature. 
that oftentimes we don't think of ourselves. We think of ourselves as separate from it, but it just feels like you get it, you live it. It's you, right? You have a place in nature. Is that sort of how you feel? I breathe in the mountain, you know, to inspire, right? To inhale is to inspire, which is where inspiration comes from. I inhale, I inspire the forest and the mountain. You know, this year brought a lot of sadness to our family. My daughter had COVID, was hospitalized three times in acute respiratory Ugh. failure in February and March. Then my father, we cared for my mother and father. My father uh, declined and uh, hospice was not really available other than to drop things off at the door. So I was doctor and daughter. My father died April 15th. And then we've struggled immensely trying to care for my mom because there was no help and she had dementia. All the home services and home health aides were all closed. So there was no other support. So my son came back with his partner and they helped with my mother. They were wonderful. My brother at that time, his cancer had returned in the middle of all of this. And I went and took him to the oncologist and the hospital in Phoenix, where we had had him treated the year before. He declined my mother passed away on June 23rd, and then my brother died on July 11th. And it wasn't like they died. It was, we were there caring for them for the whole process. And don't get me wrong, it's an incredibly sacred and privileged responsibility to have. To sit with the dying is a very powerful, powerful thing. And in many ways, I think as a midwife, I felt very prepared for it. But I lost all of those who knew me as a child in a very short amount of time and holding that and just sort of going from one to the next to the next, it felt like months of not being able to rest. Living where we do, I think, allowed the healing to happen more naturally. I wouldn't put a time frame on it, but I think it just happened because there was so much time to be alone with my thoughts. I went in to get my physical in October and, you know, we're a small town. So she knew everything that happened to me and everything. And that she said, are you sleeping? I said, oh, sometimes, sometimes not. And we kind of went on. And then she said, you know, I think you're depressed. And I said, no, I don't think I'm depressed. She goes, well, I do. I think you're depressed. And then she was starting to talk to me about antidepressants. And then I just said, I am so grateful that you are really like sitting with me and that you're really engaging with me. I said, but I want to also express to you that I'm not depressed. I'm sad. I'm sad and I'm grieving. And it's a very natural grief. It's a profound sadness because my love for my family was very deep. But I thank you for just listening. But I also thought it very interesting because doctors often don't know how to be with sadness and grief. We often just move right to its depression and we're going to give you an antidepressant instead of sitting with somebody who's sad. Who did I actually call? Cause she's like, I think you should see, see a psychiatrist. You should. And I said, no, I'm doing fine. I've had a couple calls with the hospice chaplain. I spoke with him after my father died and I spoke with him after my mother died cause he called. And I said, I called him about a month after my brother died I just said, I just wanted to talk with him. The, the doctor was like, oh, and I said, you know, pastors often are very good about helping counsel people through hard life things. I said, as doctors, we're really good at diagnosing depression. 
but pastors and healers and many people that are not physicians often are kind of trained to help us move through pain and sadness and grief because this is what they deal with. So many people can probably relate to parts of your story during this terrible, turbulent time. Is your daughter okay now? She just had hip surgery for congenital hip dysplasia that sort of manifested after all of this. And the COVID left her with severe lung problems. So a child that never had problems now has severe asthma. Oh, wow. Yeah, she got hit very bad. A healthy young female, just healthy as could be. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you saw COVID up close and personal. Yeah, with other patients too. But yeah, with my daughter was pretty profound. Speaking of COVID and the issues people are having during these times, what are some of the healthy ways that we can ease stress and anxiety? I think there's many, but the center always holds true. No matter where you are in your life, the central rules don't change. (laughs) Diet that is wholesome as it can be, so minimally processed. When you're feeling like you just want to eat the whole bag of potato chips, you've got to use a little willpower, right? (laughs) You know, maybe swap it for some skinny pop or something, popcorn, if you need something kind of salty, crunchy. But I mean, this is when you really do want to be thinking about how do I nourish my body because I'm under stress. So what does my body need? Well, actually it needs fruits and vegetables and whole grains and soups and stews. And you know what it needs. You have to move. You've got to find ways to move. And If you can get outside, wear your mask and get outside, walk the dog, walk the kids, get outside, make it a habit. It's a little easier where I live, but even on the days when it's snowing and it's cold, five miles, we do four walks a day. So it's four times we're taking these animals out and everybody's calmer, everybody's better. That movement and being outside can be profoundly good for your mental health. Sleep, it's dark, so let your body sleep more. You'll need more sleep. That's what it is. It's like it's not summer. In the summer, you sleep less. In the winter, you sleep more. So go to bed a little bit earlier. If you're really having a problem with it, you may want to take some melatonin a couple hours before bed, two, three milligrams. Use technology to your advantage. Get a dawn simulating device or put the app on your phone so that in the morning, it mimics the sunrise so that you wake up naturally. A sleep cycle can be put on your phone so that you can actually, it will detect when you're at the lightest stage of sleep and wake you up then so you're not waking up from the deepest part of sleep. Make sure that you are doing things that nurture your happiness. And when I mean that, it's like whatever makes you kind of happy, Do you like to play cards? Do you like to read? Do you like to just lay on the couch and listen to music really loud in your headphones? I mean, it doesn't matter. But whatever it is where you lose time, you lose time and it just feels so good. Make sure that you plan for that in your week, just like you plan for getting the laundry done or getting the groceries or anything else. Make sure you plan for your happiness. And then the other things I think for well-being is just how are you staying socially connected? How are your kids staying socially connected? How are you keeping your neighbors socially connected? My son and his wife made, when they were having Thanksgiving, because they were having it by themselves, they did make pies and gluten-free pies and breads based on their neighbors. And then they took them and socially distanced, dropped them off 
One of their neighbors is 75-year-old retired woman and just was delighted that they had made this for her, you know, with a nice card and everything. So practicing kindness, it comes back many fold to you. So the more you can give to others, the more that will come back to you. So my father told me once he had horrible neuropathy. My dad was a veteran and he called me and he said, I just feel so ashamed of myself. I said, Daddy, what's the matter? He said, I went to the commissary. That's the food place on the base. So I went to the commissary and I was complaining because I can't feel anything from my knees down. And I'm walking and I saw a young man, probably 30, and he didn't have any legs. He'd had him blown off in the war. And my dad started crying and he said, I have so much to be grateful for. I have so much to be grateful for. And here I am feeling sorry for myself. And I'm an old man. He's a young man that doesn't have his legs anymore. And it's one of the things I loved about my father so much was I'm going to look into the world and find things to be grateful for because there's so much in the world that's beautiful and wonderful, no matter how crazy and chaotic things are. If I can't look out into the world and find what's beautiful, the fault lies within me, not in the world. Oh my God, that's so amazing. Your dad sounds like he was a really amazing man. Yes, my love, my love. Dora was really close to her father too. And I was really close to my father too. Yeah, yeah. so we understand. Fathers and daughters. Well, Dr. Lodog, this has been a remarkable time with you, and we're just so grateful to you for joining us today. Yes, Dr. Lodog, it has been a treat, and we are so honored that you are on our podcast. Well, you two are beautiful souls. (laughs) I have just been enchanted by our time together and would be happy to do it another time again. Oh, great. Sometimes the conversations unfold as if they're meant to. And today's conversation just unfolded as it should. And again, thank you for sharing what you've been through. Not easy. Well, it's in our sharing that we realize we're not alone. Other people hear it and say, yes, that happened to me too. People know that we're linked by our common goodness and our common love and our compassion, but also through our pain and our suffering. It's all of these things that link our human family. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.